opposites out of the room. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Time to Come Alive. My name is Valerie Hope. I am your coach. I'm your host. And as usual, so eager to bring to you people with whom I connected to have a conversation that brings you to be, become more conscious, become more connected to yourself and to other people in your life. And more importantly, you get to create because of that, you get become more creative. In a few moments, I'll be uh, introducing my special guests. I know we're a little bit different timing today. We have a special edition of Time to Come Alive, so I'm excited to share with you the special guests that we have to introduce that edition. But before we do, I want to make sure that you do a couple of things. One, if you're watching this live, share it with your friends. Let them know that you're on Time to Come Alive so that they can listen in, and hopefully that'll spur some great conversation between you and them. You also have an opportunity to talk to, to share afterwards when we have the recording, share it on your timeline or share it on your social media. And that way you also can share with people in your life after that. So before we get started, let's do a little mindfulness exercise. In order to do that, just want to make sure that you're sitting seated comfortably in your chair. If you're standing, make sure that you are in a safe space. It might be helpful if you Perhaps even just soften your gaze. And as you do, just take some deep breaths. Deep breaths in and slowly out. And as you're breathing and, and clearing your mind, I want you to think back to a time where you worked with a team, or you worked with a partner perhaps, I want you to think about what it took for you in that partnership or in that team to be successful. Was it communication? Was it the fact that you practiced together and both similar skill level? Was it the environment that was around you that created enough space for you both to perform at your best? Think about what it took for you to excel with that team. And think about when you felt the freedom to use, to perform, to use your gifts, to use your skill. What did it take in order for you to feel that permission? Permission to grow, permission to perform. And on the flip side, what did you have to do in order to give your teammates or your partner the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to excel, to succeed? Consider the level of generosity that you and your teammate had to demonstrate in order for you to allow each other the space to grow and the space to perform well. And just show gratitude or experience yourself feeling gratitude for that generosity. Okay, you take one final deep breath. Well, maybe not final, but just <laughs> take a deep breath. 
and you might refocus your gaze or open your eyes and join us once again. Wonderful. I, I thought that was the most appropriate start to our conversation because today I have this power couple, I'm gonna call them the power couple, <laughs> of Francis and Kathy Conrad. You may remember Francis from a few episodes ago. We talked about transformational travel and Francis and Kathy and I all met in Arizona almost a year ago. I think in October it'll be a year. We had the opportunity to attend a growth summit a conference, a learning conference, and sat next to each other for a couple of the sessions and had an opportunity to connect then. And after that opportunity, Francis was on this program on Time to Come Alive and sharing some of his experiences with transformational travel and the coaching that he does. And his wife, Kathy, was on listening, being a supportive partner. I couldn't help but bring her into the conversation because they were just so dynamic together. And the depth and the love and the respect that I experienced in listening to the two of you share was so, uh, was so refreshing and fun that I couldn't help myself but consider that, okay, I need to have the two of you on as a couple on the show. And we're doing it today on Monday, which is a little off of our typical schedule to accommodate you. Again, you're a power couple, so power couples get what they want. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you all so much for coming. Good morning. Oh, one second. Let me un there you go. unmute you. There we go. <laughs> okay. I just said thank you for having us and, and good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> so when we started this conversation, before we even started the program, you were talking about this weekend and your experiences, but every weekend you have a certain routine <clears throat> follow. Would you mind sharing with us what that was? Well, so far. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, every Sunday, um, actually, we go to church in the morning. We, hit, we go to a, a, what I call my hippie church <laughs> in town. And, um, and then in the afternoon, we go dancing. And uh, it's over at the uh, American Legion uh, in Cottonwood, and, and they there's a live band and they play moderately well and and we dance every Sunday. Well, when did you guys start dancing? Be before we were married. Really? We in, yeah, yeah. We fell in love with each other dancing. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. You gotta there's a, there's gotta be a story that goes along with a comment like that. So Francis, tell us, what was the story? Well, you know, it starts off with the fact that um, I love music. And so Kathy came up one day, we were both in um, graduate school together. And she approached me and she said, you know, there's this band that I want to hear, but they're a country band and nobody else that we knew from our group was into country music. So she approached me and I love music, any kind of music if they're live. <laughs> so we went out, that was the first time we went. And the band was so good, they had one of the best lead guitarists that I ever heard to this day. And what happened then is that we kept going back. Every, every week they would be playing somewhere and we would go find them <clears throat> and listen because we were so into the music. But after a little bit, 
we we were actually surrounded by people each week that were dancing. So we you'd see us sitting at the side at a table, using our hands on the table to try and mimic people's feet to figure <laughs> out what what they were doing. And we that's how we got started is sitting at the table using our hands. <laughs> so, and that was because you hadn't you didn't know how to dance. You said right. Neither of us were dancers. Neither of us had ever danced before. That's fascinating. So what was it that the courage to go together and try something so new? Well, I, I had moved back to Chicago from Denver. And in, when I was in Denver, I had started listening to the country stations um, more as a, a feminist act believe it or not, <laughs> what does uh, that because mean? <laughs> they were the only stations that they, they didn't have a policy against playing two female singers right in a row. So policy? yeah, that was a policy on the rock stations and what? that they wouldn't play two women in a row. So I started listening to the country songs, the country stations, because they had all kinds of, of music and they didn't, Sometimes they would play two women in a row, sometimes they wouldn't, but there wasn't a policy against it. So I started listening to country music and I really got a kick out of it and I enjoyed it, you know, and um, some of it made me laugh and some of it made me cry. So I started listening to it. So when I went back to Chicago and went to grad school, none of my friends, they went, you listen to that. <laughs> So it was, it was, Francis was the only one I could find that would go with me to listen to this band who was a country band. It was meant to be. Interesting. Yeah. Just to give us some context, what year was this? 1980. 1980. Got it. So you went, so you went to try out a whole new style of music. You started a new <laughs> type of dancing. You had relationship out of, that was born out of that. So I, I want to go back to something you said earlier, Kathy. You said that you guys fell in love dancing. So talk about that. What happened? What was that special move or that music? That, <laughs> what was it that <laughs> created it? Actually, I, I should say it was probably closer to 1980, 81, 82 than 1980. Uh, and sometimes that would turn into a major power struggle on the dance floor. <laughs> one, of us, one of us or the other would storm off the dance floor and leave the other one standing there. <laughs> and some, but sometimes when it flowed, it was just, it was that we were working together, that he was, he was reading my moves and I was reading his moves. And so we weren't trying to control the situation. We were just following each other and, and experimenting with new, new things. This is really interesting. Well, for those that aren't familiar, in partner dancing, generally, there's always a lead and there's a follower. Generally, men will take the lead, right? Depending on the dancing that you're doing, generally men will take the lead. And it sounds like the two of you because you were kind of new to dancing as well, and I imagine partner dancing especially, it requires some give and take. So this is interesting, this whole idea of control. So how did that show up? First of all, what was happening in, like in real time that became this power struggle? 
you want to comment on that? <laughs> you know, the, um, the thing about learning to dance, I suppose it's like anything, but maybe more so with dance is, is that you really are very, very aware of how the other person is handling moves, you know, and is either starting a turn or moving you backward or forward. And it really has a lot to do with trust and being willing to put yourself into that relationship with another person in a way that feels so close and intimate because of the, that's what dance is. Um, I think that maybe if I jump ahead a little bit, um, one of my understandings about a couple relationship, if you talk about it in terms of dance, so I'm going to define a couple as a couple who dance. What defines a dance couple is that they dance enough together that they really become familiar with how to lead and follow. That's their own, which means that really good dance couples have their own style. Mm -hmm. And you can't really say they're a couple until they've gotten to that place where they have their own style. Mm. Now, to me, that's sort of a beautiful way of thinking about relationship generally. Because isn't that what every couple wants, is to be able to have their own style, to, to be themselves with each other in a way that re represents what, what they've come to in their relationship, and it doesn't come from anybody else. So we sort of had to chip away and find our style, and as we got better, people would watch us and they could tell that we were a couple because we danced in a way like nobody else did. And also, I think, because we enjoyed it so much. <laughs> I, you know, I love that analogy because I, I love dancing. I grew up in a culture, you know, in Panama, we grew up dancing salsa, merengue, all partner dances for the most part. And we have this thing with my, my dad is very passionate about it, that you dance to the beat of the music. You don't dance to the choreography. And yeah. what, over the years, when I've interacted with people who've learned to dance, most individuals learn to dance to the steps they're taught, right? There's a choreography of sorts. So when you put two people who've learned some choreography, it doesn't always quite develop into a style like you define. And what I think is interesting is also that the, the, the way you have to, like you said, trust and intimacy that requires for people to develop a style together as opposed to both come in with the steps that they know, that's, that's kind of tricky. And I can imagine in a relationship, people come in with whatever they know, whatever expectations they have. So what were those expectations for you guys? What did you get into this relationship with? <laughs> um, well, uh, there, there were some expectations that uh, changed when we got married and, the, and as we got married, um, there was something about that definition of married and husband and wife that kind of altered things. And so it didn't happen right away for me. Um, but the first time that it snowed after we got married and I looked out the window and went, my car's not cleaned off. 
because that was one of the things when I, my father used to do for me is he used to go out and <laughs> scrape my windows and clean my car off. And the first time I looked out the window and went, I have to clean my own car off. I realized I had this expectation that that would be something that he would do for me. So crazy. What was it like before you married though? That oh, in the relationship? Uh-huh. Well, we had been friends. We'd been part of a group together in graduate school. So during graduate school, I dated somebody else and he dated somebody else. So we had been really good friends up to that point. Mm -hmm. So um, I think our only, ex I think our expectation is that, is that we would be respectful of each other. Because okay. that's what we were as friends. Now, did you live together prior to getting married? For probably a little bit. We traveled together before we got married because wow. I had to go back to work. <laughs> I, had, I worked in schools. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, so we, I, we joke that we took our honeymoon before we got married. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so then you get married and you notice this expectation that Francis would take care of you in a, in a certain way. That mm -hmm. taking care of you. So was Francis in the room when you made that comment, my car isn't clean? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it wasn't like... Francis! <laughs> okay, so Francis, what was your experience at that moment or when you started to get, you started to notice these expectations? Were the, most, the most obvious one to me, I remember the day that um, when we were together, I loved to cook. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of the cooking and probably most of it. All of it. Yeah, it was something that I did by choice because I loved it. When we got married, there was some part of me that expected that, you know, women cook. <laughs> and I had no idea <laughs> that that was so strong because we'd been together and it never bothered me to cook before. But anyways, at this point, I decided that's it. I'm not going to cook. It's her job. So I, I got like stubborn and just sat back and didn't say a word. It's like hours went by, and I'm going, I'm starved. <laughs> Why isn't she cooking yet? <laughs> Why isn't she bringing this up? I don't know how long it was. In my mind, it was a long, long time. And at the end of it, all I can remember is I thought to myself, this is crazy. I'm never going to go through this again. I promised myself, if I'm hungry, I'm cooking. <laughs> Was it over the course of a day, a meal? Were you fasting for weeks? Like <laughs> that was one day. One day. One day. But it turned me around because I was so hungry. I realized in this relationship, I'm not going to make cooking an issue, even though in my mind, I had this expectation that that's what women do, so I'm not supposed to be doing it all the time. My wow. mother cooked. And I, and I did step up and try to cook for a while, and he's pretty much decided that my cooking was boring because <laughs> I could, I could, you know, cook a steak and vegetables <laughs> and that was about it. So I think it. that, you know, the message there is how easily we have all these expectations in our head and we're not aware of them no. until 
in this case, after we got married, those expectations were attached to being married. Mm. So that's like being out on the dance floor and do you storm off or do you work it out? And basically I think that first year was hard because there were just a lot of those, they were little things, but they, we needed to accept and adjust to find our own style. And in the end, our style was that, you know, there were times when Kathy cleaned her car and there were times when I did cooking and we worked that out as a couple. And it started taking us away from the norms that we had from our own families. In That's fact, maybe what, what's telling is <laughs> the norms we had from our families, we both had conversations and agreed that <laughs> neither of us wanted to have a relationship like our parents. We wanted to go beyond that <laughs> and make our life different. And wow. And so basically, we actually went out within the first couple of years on this search because we decided we wanted to find another couple that would be a better model for us than our parents were. Mm. And we actually found that couple and they have become our best friends and to this day. There are two things that we have in common. They love to dance. Rick always says that you, you can cha-cha to anything, and they love to travel. So it's like, what a mix, you know? We, but the idea of looking for a model, I think, says a lot, doesn't it? It says that we really wanted to find a way to develop our, our own style and to be ourselves and to be around people who might be like us rather than our families. We were moving on beyond that. So that was early on, too. What I love about what you just described is, first of all, these, those expectations that you had of marriage were blind spots. Right? They, yeah. You had no clue that they were there until the moment occurred that you thought, wait, isn't she supposed to? Isn't he supposed to? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious about that moment because I imagine that um, until we put that into some sort of context, until you see how it's not aligned with the behavior, or there's something that happens besides just being aware of the expectation in order for it to transform. So what was it that you needed to do, either individually or as a couple, for that blind spot to actually be something you could act upon? Um, I, I commented on it. I don't remember. Um, you know, whether he was there when I, when it first hit me, but there was this, this understanding or this insight, an insight that, oh my gosh, I've got all these. And then I started being aware of any little expectation that I hadn't been conscious of before about the, the gender roles and who was supposed to do what in a marriage and, and, and all of those things. So I started with that insight that this is crazy <laughs> um, because the minute I had the thought of, Oh, my car's not cleaned off. Then I went, this is crazy. Why would I expect my car to be cleaned off? But then we talked about it. I told him about my experience and, um, and interestingly enough, the same way I started trying to cook some, he, you know, started cleaning off my car sometimes too. <laughs> so <laughs> it came a little trade off. Yeah. Huh? 
Yeah, well, it was it was less of a trade off and more that we really just wanted the other person to be happy. Yeah, and and I think that we have within our relationship a part of the answer to your question is how do you know when one of those expectations is coming up? Mm-hmm. And one of the um, you know simplest ways that I would know is. I would start to get freaked out because of how, in my mind, how angry Kathy would get out of nowhere. <laughs> so she she would get angry, and I would want to shut down. And as soon as that happened, I knew something's going on. My style was the opposite. So my style was, if I feel myself shutting down and just wanting to clam up, not say anything or go away, that was my signal that something was going on. So at some level, we came at this being very different types of people. And over time, maybe the, in, in terms of that situation with anger, you could tell them about being angry for me and, and what we learned about that. Because there were all, feelings were maybe the key to the whole puzzle. Okay. But anyways, anger was one that we had to deal with because Kathy was more comfortable with it than I was, and I would freak out sometimes. And and I was. I I had a temper from, you know, they used to say Kathleen was an appropriate name for me with my Irish temper. <laughs> and um, and I did have a, a temper pretty much my, my whole life. And what I realized um, at some point, and I think it, I'm not sure exactly when, but I was in a group processing thing and I started feeling anger rising and I decided I was just going to keep my mouth shut. I wasn't going to say anything. And by me not saying anything, all of a sudden he was saying things. And my my sister was in there too, and my sister was saying things. And I went, huh, interesting. So I'm just quicker to say things in, and so I don't give other people a chance to experience what they might experience because I can feel it and express it for them. Oh, okay, this is right. Okay, so I just want to, I want to kind of reconnect some of the things that you were talking about. One, it sounds like you all, you both started to notice the clue to some expectation or some blind spot was the feeling. Yes. Case Kathleen, anger was there present. In your case, Francis, it was some way of shutting down or, yeah. or constraint. There's some constraint. When you got present to those emotions is when you realize, okay, some things just happened that we actually need to deal with or talk about. And it also sounds like, Kathleen, for you, this is so brilliant because, yeah, we are kind of programmed to express the way we've been taught to express. I, I you know, my, I remember <laughs> when I was, uh, when I was married, I, the, the therapist that I went to for premarital counseling, they <laughs> mentioned how each couple, usually you have an innie and you have an outie, like a big button. So the innie is the person that goes within, they withdraw to process, to, to calm down, to sometimes withhold or withdraw from the situation. And the outie is the person that wants to deal with it, come talk, let's do it. You probably imagine which one I am. 
uh -huh. <laughs> Audi all the way. Uh, and then I just, I love that, that you all had the presence of mind. I'm curious though, what was your community like? And I say community because I'm including there some of the friends that you had, perhaps your family models, society at the time. What was your community like and how did they, how did that influence how you got to this point or perhaps what kept you in that state? How did they influence you? You know, when you say community, um, at that point in our life, probably all of our really closest friends were a small group of people we went to school with. And we truly were a community because we would do things together almost every week in school. As a group, we were all single and we would go out and eat or we would go dancing or we would do different things. We even went camping. We took a, a road trip together to Canada afterwards. So that group, it's interesting. Everything we're saying about the two of us, you just multiply it. Because we had one guy that was always late for everything. And so what we did on, on him is we would just start giving him the wrong time. So he would show, he thought he showed up on time, but we told him an hour early. Wow. <laughs> you know, and we had, every one of us started to just play into the group by being able to be ourselves. And so I think that maybe part of the, the challenge of any group is, you know, our group had what, like five people, I think, is for all five people to feel like they can be themselves and for the group to sort of, you know, accept people the way we are. Yeah. Well, I think the, the other part that I'm curious about is sometimes our society, right? Again, that community has such an influence on how we relate as, as, as couples, right, or in partnership. I'm curious about if there was any influence. You literally, you said that you discovered you didn't want to be the, you didn't want to use your parents as the model of how you should marry or how you should be a couple, but you started to look for another. But I'm curious about the rest of that community, because I know I found in my own experience that that's sometimes the, the, my biggest hurdle in the beginning, at least when I was younger, is yeah, when my girlfriends are like, oh, Valerie, oh my gosh, he did what? No, you should do this, you should allow that, right? We have those conversations, especially women. I don't know, men, if you have the same level of engagement. No. <laughs> but women, we have a lot to say. <laughs> and and to, be, to be honest with you, two things is one is that group really was, we, we had all gone to graduate school of social work. So we all had these, um, we weren't as apt to jump in and say, you know, take a side because we were aware of that triangle of that if you take a side, then you're going to throw everything off. Um, the triangle, by the way, is the victim, rescuer, persecutor triangle. And you're always on one of those points. If what was that again? The victim, the victim, rescuer, and persecutor. So if I'm a victim and making him out to be a persecutor and somebody jumps in to be a rescuer, then that rescuer becomes his persecutor and he ah. becomes a victim and I have to jump in and rescue him. So it's always this, this thing of going around and around. So we were aware of that in the group of, that we went to grad school with. So we didn't tend to jump in and support one side or the other. 
-hmm. And then the other group of people we met with every week was my family. Um, because we lived about an hour away from my family and they went out to dinner every Sunday night and they offered to treat us for dinner every Sunday night. So we drove down and joined them every week. And, um, and at that point, um, there was my father and mother and my sister and her daughter. And so we would go out to dinner with them every week. And, and at that, my, my parents were kind of like that too, is you, you wouldn't jump in and rescue some. They might rescue us from, um, for actions and things like that, but not in relationship, you know. Interesting. Uh, it's like, no, you, you know, you got to work it out. So. so I'll say the same thing, but it from another angle. And I think that as, as therapists, all of us were trained therapists. Um, there was like an underlying understanding that um, when, when we were a group and when we were together and having fun, the, it was not therapy. So we, we almost agreed the good thing is we agreed not to do therapy on each other. Right. I think the good thing about our relationship between Kathy and I is we agreed not to do therapy on each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's where dancing became so important because it gave us a place to become a couple without needing to talk about therapy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a garden in the backyard. So that gave me a place to go out and putz around and get away from Kathy if I needed to, but I was doing something productive. And, and so I think because we had so many different activities and th- with our group, we went, we went out as a group because we enjoyed each other and we had fun. And we would, we would do different things. We'd go to the lake or we would go to a restaurant, but those were the kinds of things I think that kept us healthy, not talking about the relationship but having things to do that we enjoyed and that became the focus and we had friends to do it with and it sounds to me at least from how you've described it that this evolution took place simultaneously but i can imagine that's probably not the case in most relationships that you have these disgrace and voila both of you <laughs> now you know transform so i'm curious about how you manage these you know, these revelations or these insights as you were going through a different time? Well, one was, I think, going back to a very simple, um, very, very clear decision. And that decision happened. I think, you know, you could say that we would have differences and we could blow up and everything else. But this was like maybe the first major one. And so... As, as it evolved, it got nasty. The coffee table got kicked over. <laughs> Kathy stormed out of the house. I was there by myself. It's like, oh my gosh, what happened? Is this relationship over? This was the first time that that came up. And I think both of us came to the conclusion that no matter what, we had been through that. We weren't going to go to that same place of questioning whether we should be in a relationship or not. We were in a relationship. So rather than questioning it, we, I think, knew from that point on somehow that we were going to work it out. 
even if it was difficult. So we didn't have to question the relationship. We just had to figure out how to get through things and work them out. And that made a huge difference. How, how did that conversation happen? How did you get to the point where you, you agreed that this is the relationship no matter what? I, I, when I stormed out, I made it half, we were in an apartment and I made it halfway down the stairs and I was in my mind saying, F you, I don't need this. Yeah, <laughs> and I can't I, bleep this out, Kathy, so I'm glad. <laughs> <you did that. laughs> yeah, and, and so, so I went for probably, I didn't intend on going for about a four hour walk, but I got lost and <laughs> so it ended up coming back about four hours later and just walking in the door and saying, do you want a divorce? And we'd only been married a couple months. So when I'd say that we'd made it through our first year of marriage, we could make it through anything. We had some really rough times during that. Um, and, and that was when, you know, he didn't, and I, he, he turned to me, he goes, well, do you? <laughs> and no, neither of us wanted that. You know, and, and so there were times that we didn't speak to each other. So we had to institute some ways of connecting, even if we weren't speaking with each other. And so... Why was that important? Um, because we knew that if we wanted the relationship to continue, that we had to connect somehow. Okay. And um, so we started kissing each other, hello and goodbye good morning and good night. Uh, because we realized, or I realized, I, I think you did too, that if something would have happened to the other one during that time we weren't speaking to each other, we would have felt horrible mm. about never having said good morning, good night. So we started giving us, you know, giving that kiss. And we still do it today. Wow. Okay, so, so the moments when you are not feeling each other, like disconnected from each other, you're upset, you're angry, hurt, whatever that is. You still, you have a routine, it sounds mm -hmm. like, created a, a ritual, let's call it a ritual. Yeah. No right. matter what's happening, what your mood, how your energy level, whether you're upset or not, you will always say good morning, good night, you will always kiss good morning, good night. Mm -hmm. and, ah. and hello and goodbye, and we would always go dancing. And dancing. And, and the things that we had, like the garden and all those things, it's interesting how if you give yourself some time, a lot of that begins to just shift on its own. Okay, say more about that, Francis. Um, if, if I'm feeling hurt and I go out and I have my hoe and I start hoeing in the garden, usually within 10 minutes, I'm not feeling hurt anymore. I'm mostly focused on hoeing in the garden. So it's like a natural way. I acknowledge the feeling, I'm aware of what's going on, but it usually is not that important after a short time. And so it was the natural way. And I think dancing did the same thing for us because we had so much fun dancing, we could walk in in a bad mood and it would start to shift on its own. You, you're a dancer, so you know dancing could change almost anything. Yeah, it does change the energy. I, I love what you're saying because it's, you know, Tony Robbins talks about this a lot. He talks about state change. Right? He mentions that if you want to change your mentality, you got to move your body in the way that would help, you know, facilitate that. And it sounds like that's what your ritual does. Your, yeah. your good morning kisses and your hello and your 
going to do whatever activity, like dancing in this case, is a state change. So whether or not your mind has caught up or your feelings have caught up, your body is already engaged. <laughs> helps facilitate it. Oh, that's really brilliant. What? And what you could add to that is that because we were giving ourselves permission to get out of our, our anger, or our moods or whatever, changing state, then we didn't need to analyze the relationship because the relationship was just getting healthier on its own. Okay, now, you're going to have to say more about that. I'm not sure I follow this. It sounds deep and profound, though. It is deep. You started it. You go ahead. Um, <laughs> Where does a relationship come from, you know? Mm. Is it something that Kathy and I have to fix all the time in order for the relationship to be strong? Or was our relationship something that was real right from the beginning? And when we got in fights or our moods came up, they were just things from our past, from our history that were interfering. But once we moved them away, the relationship never had to be fixed. Underneath it all, who we were, and I think maybe we knew this on some levels over the years, it's gotten stronger. But I don't think that the relationship ever was what was at stake. We had a relationship somehow and we knew it. But these other things would get in the way. When you have a relationship, you never have to fix it. I, I, I really love that. I love that. And it's, that's, that's funny. It's taken me many, many years <laughs> to learn that. I, I remember when I was married that, yeah, a lot of my challenge was like, how do we fix this? We need to fix this relationship. There, there was an inordinate amount of reading. Like I told you, I've engaged therapists. There was conversations about it all the time. And I will say now that, you know, we divorced, I've healed that relationship. But now in my, my current relationship, I'm finding that my tendency would be to go fix something, right? Talk about it. I'm, and, and I also realized that, no, my, my kind of like what you said, Kathy, about your anger, my go-to is like, let's talk about it. Let's fix it. Let's, you know, that Audi, that Audi energy takes over. And I've realized there's so much more power now and maturity and wisdom and actually just leaning back and allowing whatever comes up. I, I tend to attract men who are much more introverted than I am. So that also the energy, I have to, my state change has to be to just relax. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have a great partner, he, t he reminds me. <laughs> <laughs> he reminds me through his actions and his words that yeah, okay, back off. <laughs> wow. Wow, this is really brilliant. So the relationship isn't something to work out. It sounds like what you really work on, though, is the blind spots, is the yes. past, habitual thinking that gets in the way. How do you do that? How, how does one, in a couple, especially when they're so highly charged, how do you actually consider that as opposed to working on the relationship? Well, um one of the things when we talked on Friday that Francis mentioned is what we went to a, a couples workshop up at Omega Institute in, in uh, New York. And in that workshop, when we first got there, um, they assigned us to groups and we never saw each other except, and we weren't allowed to talk about anything during the weekend, or I think it was the weekend, um, but we were completely separated and we ended up working on a lot of stuff 
Um, by the end of the weekend, what we got mostly from that is that you can heal your relationship, not you don't have to do it with your relationship. You can do it with yourself, with other people, and as you heal yourself and other people, then that automatically does some healing of your relationship. And so um, that whole that whole experience, that whole weekend experience made us so acutely aware of that it's not an other problem. It's an, it's an inside out issue. It's not an outside in issue. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to a deeper question. We're okay. digging in here today. Um, I suspect in every real relationship, this is probably there somewhere. But I suspect that early on in every real relationship, there is a moment when both people see and are totally present to that relationship in its healthiest way and know that it's there. And I think that if that never happens, I'm not sure how a relationship would develop because you sort of have to, you have to connect to it. And, and um, when you do connect to it at that level, it's like you know something that you know so deeply nobody can take it away. And all the distractions and all the emotion and everything else does, does not ever you know, have any power in relationship to that, that direct knowing that's there. And what, what would that knowing look like, Francis? Can you, can you describe that so that people get a sense of what to look for? I'll describe my experience. Because um, I think it, it's got to come to everybody in their own way. But I'm a traveler. So Kathy and I were in Egypt. The setting was ideal for this anyway. We're both, you know, young. We're in Egypt. It's a warm night because it's always warm in Egypt. We're sitting on a, a bench way above the Nile. And there's people walking around with these white garbs, you know, down to their ankles and camels in the background and palm trees and in that setting all I can say is I can remember looking at Kathy and what I saw and what I knew was so complete that there was no words it was just I knew were were you know there's something special here and I I I knew also that it was it was so powerful and so meaningful that I would do anything to keep it. So I think it was all there. And it was before we were married. It was just before it was on our pre-marriage honeymoon. But I, I saw it so clearly. So I think to me, the experience was a type of clarity, like all the veils were gone and something very deep was present. And no matter what, when I go back to that memory, I can still recall that memory in, in a sense with, with that same clarity and I have no doubts about that. There's something that I saw in Kathy that, that, that was her essence. It's, it's who she truly was. That's what, to me, our relationship is about is we go out of it and we find it again. And we go out of it and we find it. And we go out of it and, and over the years it gets better because 
maybe what happens is finding it is, you know, something that um, deepens. When you're, you don't question it. When, I'm curious also about when you start to discover individually, right? I imagine, Francis, though that was your experience. That's what you saw was the essence of your relationship, right? When you saw her. I yeah. If Kathy, you had the same experience in Revelation at some point, or did you find yourself doing something, appreciating or noticing something different, or did you just talk about it? What, what exactly happened? So um, for me, I think it was, uh, there was a couple of, the, cumulatively, there's been a number of moments that I've had where, um, where I just knew. And um, one of them was that when he asked me to marry him, the, the, the joy that rose in me. So again, being aware of the feeling. Um, and, and that, it just was like excitement. But that, that moment of connection was probably that I, that I remember the most is right before the wedding. I was so anxious, you know, just putting on the dress and getting all that anxiety, you know. And then we get, we, we go down and, and, you know, get face to face with each other at the wedding. And I look into his eyes as we're reading our, our vows to each other. And in that moment, it was like everybody disappeared and it was just him and me. And so that was probably a primary moment for me. And we, we still do that. We'll be eating dinner and we'll look up at each other and there'll just be that connection. And it's just like, one of us will say it, you know, I love you. And, and so it's just right there. And it's, uh, I, I recognize it usually through the eyes when he and I are looking at each other. Mm-hmm. And, and so we can really connect. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, we have one of our, our guests has a question actually. And, and if you want to unmute yourself and ask, please do. But I'll, I'll read what's in the chat. And then if you guys need more clarity, you might need to say, share a little more. The question is Is it okay to keep anger in? So, Kathy, Francis. You should. <laughs> She's the anger expert. <laughs> the fiery one. So we'll start with you, Kathy. Yeah. Well, I I have a couple of, of ways of looking at that. Is it would not have been healthy for me at the time for, to be keeping my anger in because then it would have gone towards me because I didn't know what to do with it. It had to get expressed. So if I wasn't putting it out, it probably would have gone in. And, and I probably would have gotten pretty depressed. But what's been really helpful is recognizing that anger is just a feeling like any other feeling. And it, all our feelings just come and go. None of them are permanent. I'm not an angry person. I feel angry sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I got to the point where I could just allow myself to just feel it, recognize it, try to figure out, okay, so what is this telling me about, what is, what are my feelings telling me about what I'm thinking about what's going on here? And almost always anger is telling me that I'm thinking somebody's trying to control me or I'm thinking, and I have to protect myself or I'm thinking 
um, that somebody should be doing something that they're not, or they shouldn't be doing something that they are, and I want them to change. It's almost always an outside-in kind of thing. So when I allow the feeling to just tell me my thinking is that I want that outside experience to change, and then I remember that my experience of things is mine. And then the anger just disappears. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can. <laughs> That's really profound. So you're basically what you're saying is that, first of all, you have to be really conscious of the emotion that's driving, right? Well, that's the driving emotion. In this case, if it's anger, and then you figure out what's the cause, like what's the source of the anger? What was triggered? What triggered that anger? Mm-hmm. Sounds like once you've identified the trigger, then you actually see that, oh, well, is, that, is it that person doing something or is it some expectation that I have? Like, what's, is that what, is that what you're saying? That there's something that now need to resolve or need to realign? What ex- frozen. Yeah, we just froze on you. Or oh, you you're froze frozen? on us. Okay, I hear you. Oh, okay, now okay. I can. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, so, so once you discover that the, the thought that's driving the emotion what do you do with the thought? Do you talk about it? Do you reflect on it? What exactly happened? I, I think I just look at it and go, oh, huh, interesting. Kind of like I did when I saw that my car wasn't cleaned off with the snow. I go, huh, wow, that is so bizarre. That's so funny that that thought would come into my head, that I would think that that would be an expectation. And I often do that when I have, when my feelings let me know about thoughts. Not always. Sometimes my thoughts are, yeah, but, (laughs) you know, and it keeps going. But sometimes just becoming aware of what those thoughts are. They're so hilarious. Ah, So kind of like, it it sounds like you almost do, you know, are you familiar with Byron Katie? Mm -hmm. The work, it sounds like you almost do that process intuitively where you question the thought. And is it true? Can you be absolutely sure that is true? What do I, how do I feel if, if, I, if I were to believe this thought? And then how do I turn it around? Those are like the four questions that yeah. Katie asks. I hadn't thought about it, but you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay, so, so. So there's another side to this. Uh-huh. Like a hidden side. Ooh. And I wonder what attracts couples, you know, what the, what is it? Um, as we're talking, one of the things that I suspect is that what attracted me to Kathy is that she was more comfortable with anger than I was. Mm. And so I said, my tendency is to go inward, to shut down, to get away. The truth is my tendency is that I have more of an issue with anger than she does Mm. because I'm the one that's more uncomfortable with it, even recognizing it. So being around her has been very helpful for me because it's giving me access to her ability to be more comfortable with something that really scares me. And I think over the years, I've actually begun to see that there's way more anger in me than I suspected, but I would not have ever known that if we weren't together as a couple. So maybe one of the benefits of a couple relationship really has to do with the fact that we really do help each other to grow. And she's helped me, let's say, partly by stepping back and not expressing my anger for me, for for me to become more and more in touch with 
how to deal with my own anger and the fact that I have a lot. Wow. So yeah, there's two sides to it. And what a blessing to be able to look at it from the perspective where now I can say that, you know, I've gained so much by being in relationship with her because of her ability to deal, deal with anger differently than I did. You know, that's, that is so true. I, I think one of the benefits of being in any kind of relationship, especially a romantic one, is it does become a great teacher. I have to say, my ex-husband was one of my greatest teachers. And I didn't get that until after we divorced. Because, from, at least for me at the time, I, he was very expressive. He is very expressive. He's Argentinian. <laughs> you know, and he felt sad. He felt it when he was angry. He felt it. He was always expressing his feelings. And I grew up in an environment where expressing your feelings that way was just not okay. It. You know, change your mind. Do whatever you need to. But don't cry. Don't leave <laughs> Yeah, like all of that. So I really I learned to, to kind of diminish the feelings, withhold feeling. And I was attracted because he was so expressive with his. Yeah. Time I couldn't stand it. <laughs> it was the one thing that annoyed me so much. I remember <laughs> when I'd get home and I would hear tango music playing. And I was coming home, I'm like, oh, he's homesick. Oh, he's going to be upset or sad about something. And then sometimes I would go turn around and go shopping or something. <laughs> go with it. But in reflection, after our divorce, I remember never feeling as sad. The sadness that I experienced after our divorce, I had never, I'd never been present to before. And I learned to sit with it, sit with sadness and uncover, like, what does that mean? Why do I make it mean such a bad thing that I'm sad right. to cry or angry or to express? And he... I think really, when I talk about time to come alive, he brought my emotions to life. And, and over the years, I've really, it's been 15 years now since that, that divorce, but I've become a much more expressive, expressive in my love, expressive, expressive on my, uh, my anger, expressive in my sadness. Like I, I'm a bigger, better person because of that relationship. And I've been able to take that on in other relationships. Well, so I, I love that you said that, that that's really one of the main opportunities that we have in relationship. Yeah. I'm curious though, first of all, do you guys have children? No. No. Okay. Then what do you know, or how do you, how do you think marriage and then having children impact that dynamic? I know you haven't experienced it, but I imagine in some of the couples that you've worked with or other relationships that you've encountered, what do you see? Um, there's a lot of things. One is that that's one of the places, the primary places that I think couples suddenly end up having lots of expectations about how things should be that they weren't really aware of until they become parents. The same way we talk about that we weren't really aware of our expectations until we got actually got married. Um, and and the, when a baby is born, all, all of a sudden, the couple is no longer husband and wife, they're mother and father. And I think we put so many, have so many unconscious expectations about what a mother is, what a father is, even more so than what a husband is, what a wife is. 
So I think that's, that's one of the primary things that can trigger a lot of, of back and forth in terms of, of all those unconscious arguments <laughs> of expectations. I think that's one of the beginning. Um, yeah. So. One of the things it reminded me of is the saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably one of the, the more wise sayings yeah. that I've learned over the years is that a lot of times as a therapist, we got to be part of people's families. Kids took us on, you know, we were like distant, we were some sort of relative or something in their mind. And they take you in, they're so open. And so there's something about families that I don't think that we're meant to do it all alone. And I think that when we can have an outside place to go, then what happens is it does the same thing that my going to the garden did as a, a way of releasing you know, what I was going through and shifting. When kids go to somebody else's house or to another family member, the same process happens. So I think for families to stay healthy naturally, a village is maybe one of the first things to look at is do we have enough resources? And it's not just for the kids, it's also for the parents to have a place to go. Um, that village at atmosphere takes care of a lot of things and, and they don't build. <laughs> I, I really appreciate the two of you bringing to light, I think a couple things. One is you know, we talked about we don't learn about relationships. I think what you've kind of highlighted is we don't learn about relationships the same way that we learn how to read or that we learn math or that we learn, you know, even cooking, right? There's recipe books, there's cooking shows, there's a lot of instructional information in the world about how to do a lot of things. One of them <laughs> is not really <laughs> how to marry well or how to manage relationships well. I mean, there's more literature now. I think what you're pointing to is the experience of creating models or creating instruction for yourself by model, have a model couple. You mentioned right. model couple that you look to, someone that you can say, that's how we want to relate to ourselves. How do we, how do we become more like that? And then what you pointed to recently, Francis was about this village. How do I you know, in, increase the likelihood that we'll be able to see and experience different ways of parenting or different ways of being a couple with children in this case by connecting with village of people right other families or other friends that will be helpful that's that's really interesting that that's the way to learn how to be good relationships by experiencing or opening up to others i wanted to throw something in because when he was talking i had mentioned about the expectations of each other as mm -hmm. mother and father but I think one of the things that stops a lot of people from reaching out to the village is the expectations of themselves as mother and father. I think a lot of the self-expectations is I should know how to do this. This should be natural for me. Mm. And so that they, there's a guilt and a shame about not being a perfect mother and a perfect father. And so people are less apt to reach out to that village. And so as they start feeling worse about 
you know, because who knows how to be a parent until they're a parent. And so that I think there's a lot of inner expectations on that one that are not necessarily there for the couple as well. And what it reminded me of, there's a, uh, a really good family therapist who is one of the early pioneers in the field back in the 60s. And she worked with a lot of families that were healthy, with families that were extremely dysfunctional, that had problems. And I always remembered that she said that the sign of a healthy family was that they were messy. (laughs) (laughs) That they were a mess, but that they knew how to address it and how to help each other get out of it quickly. It wasn't avoiding being a mess. It was being able to respond to what's needed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Kathy just talked about. Is that Virginia Satir? Virginia Satir. Virginia Satir. Does she have any literature, you think? That- oh, yeah. Yeah, and she has some, some really simple explanations in her books. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll get that link and I'll put it in the, in the show notes. Oh, after. thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is brilliant. And I know I've learned a lot from Alison Armstrong. She talks a lot about understanding men, how for women, it's an essential part, not only understanding men, she also even has a course to understand yourself as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, the, <laughs> the course for women, for understanding men, for women is a two-day, full-day, two-full-day course. And we have to take that, women have to take that, before we are allowed to take the Understanding Women course. <laughs> the only course that men have to take is Understanding Women. They don't have a prerequisite. <laughs> we require a lot of information. But I, I realize that so much of what you guys are describing in your relationship is based on great partnership. And that's what really good dancing produces. When really good dancers are not just the ones that can do all the fancy death-defying moves, but they're just great partners. They know how to read one another. They honor and respect what each other can and cannot do. A partner that has to do a certain move that the other mm-hmm. is not prepared for or doesn't know how <laughs> is not a very good partner. So, they <laughs> so there's this level of trust, communication. You mentioned intimacy that takes place. And I, I love that the two of you have found a way not only to live it, obviously, in your relationship, but that you actually practice it every week. (laughs) You know, and if you were to complete your image of dance, Uh the other thing that's going on is that dance really comes from a relationship with the people who are in the band. Hmm. Literally, bands speed up and slow down depending on how the dances are going. There is a communication on some very quiet, subtle level that good bands who are dance bands, they are not just out there doing the same movement, you know, and beat every week. It depends on who's dancing. And then the other thing is every single person on the dance floor is very attuned to everybody else because otherwise we'd be running into each other. So when you learn to dance, you're taking who you are and what's unique and putting it into an environment that is really receptive to a band and to other dancers. Mm. So it's much more part of a whole community, which is maybe why when we've danced over the years, dance groups become our support group. 
because you can't dance without developing that sensitivity to others. So we close through the action. Ah, that's, but that, that, doesn't that bring it full circle, you know? It's like <laughs> we're talking about dance really is a good metaphor for relationships yeah. and for family. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, it's been such a joy to <laughs> the two of you. It really has. Now we've gone over our, <laughs> our <laughs> here, but I know we could talk forever. I'm sure at some point in time, I might bring you back to do a part two of this. Is there any, any last thoughts that you think would be important for our, our listeners and our viewers? It seems like there should be something. Yeah, um, <laughs> it doesn't have to be. But I think a last thought is that there's a spillover that we didn't talk about. And the spillover to me is that out of Kathy and my relationship, other people benefit. Yeah. We have something to give. We feel full. We feel, and when you feel full, you, it's like you go out and it can go out to other people, then you're not sucking energy you're giving. Ah, nice. I love You've done that. You've done that for us this morning. <laughs> you're, you're being able to be full together as a couple, as partners, have now has spilled over. <laughs> spilled over to anyone that will be watching and listening to this conversation. We have the opportunity because of your generosity of sharing so vulnerably with us your experiences, your knowledge, your wisdom, and we now have the chance to benefit from that. So I'm sure I go out having conversations and listening differently than I would have an hour ago. And that's really the benefit of, of these types of conversations. And I wanna encourage everyone to have them more often. I, I think what you guys do so beautifully is that level of consciousness that most of us take for granted or maybe even avoid having to deal with certain things you all bring to the forefront, really start looking at, well, what is it that I'm experiencing? Why is that that way? And it sounds like you do it first for yourself and then when appropriate, you actually bring it up in the conversation with your partner or like you said, you use community. Mm -hmm. Necessarily work on the relationship. You can work on yourself and with other people and other circumstances. And you've done that for us today. I think you have, we now have the opportunity to be a better version of ourselves. Thank you. It's Thank only you minutes <laughs> 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 oh thank you guys so much i appreciate again the time that you've taken in the early morning i know you're out in in arizona and so you're a couple of an hour a couple hours ahead of us so thank you so much for this and I want to encourage the rest of you who are listening out there to next week we're going back to our regular scheduled programming Tuesday <laughs> morning we actually have a wonderful friend of mine will be joining us, Sandy Minogue, and she will be, she's a prayer warrior. I call her a prayer storyteller. And so we'll, we'll start at an hour, half hour before if you would like special prayer. She's one of the people who I, she goes to my church and has revolutionized prayer for me, actually. <laughs> she makes it so much more engaging and entertaining than I've ever experienced. I think she brings a certain energy to it. So I encourage anyone that's interested to actually come on, 30 minutes before and make your request or send me your prayer request and she'll be happy to do something live online and then we'll have a conversation with her about how she's used her spiritual life to transform and come alive. We're looking forward to having you join us for that conversation. Great.
Kathy, Francis, again, thank you so very much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. I hope you enjoy your dancing this coming Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. Thank oh, you. It's my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>